Hello and welcome to the Medico Lifestyle Podcast. My name is Dr Jonas Hayes, I'm a foundation doctor. And my name is Emily Kelly and I'm a graduate entry medical student. Our podcast tackles tough medical topics and we welcome guests to talk about their work in the world of healthcare and beyond. So hi everyone, welcome to our Medico Lifestyle Podcast and today we are delighted to be joined by Dr Tamsin Ellis and we are really excited because this is our first Medico Lifestyle Podcast where we are going to be interviewing someone else and we really hope you enjoy the episode. So Dr Tamsin Ellis is a qualified GP working in North London and she is really interested in how the climate emergency can relate to healthcare. Um, which is something that we are really interested in as well. And we're really looking forward to find out more throughout the episode. So um, over to Tamsin. Um, So I was about to introduce you as a GP trainee, but then realised that you've just qualified because I saw that on your Instagram yesterday. So congratulations. Oh, thank you. Yes, it's a bit daunting. I'm sure people who've qualified into a new role feel the same, but um, it's exciting as well because it gives me a bit more opportunity to work on, on climate and sustainability. So I think a lot of our listeners will be interested in how the climate emergency really does relate to healthcare. Um, so can you tell us a bit about that? How do the two meet? I think that's a good place to start. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I think that's a really good place to start and it's why I feel so passionately about it. So essentially, when I learned about, you know, I'd heard a bit about climate change, I'd, I'd read a bit and had a bit in school and things like that. And then it kind of came to my attention that it was a, people were kind of saying the thing that it was a health crisis as well. And when I started to read into the health consequences of the warming planet i just thought actually as doctors we have a responsibility here to do something about this um so essentially they kind of tend to break it down into the health consequences into a few genres so it talks about how you know you get more the warmer the planet is the more vector-borne diseases so things like malaria and dengue could start coming to european shores um they talk about the effects on air pollutions obviously with bigger emissions you're seeing things with you know the direct consequences on things like asthma and and then the kind of long, more long-term things like strokes and heart attacks so that's kind of a, a kind of idea of some of the things that i learned about thinking oh actually this is really connected um, that got me first sort of thinking about why, as doctors or healthcare professionals, we should be taking an interest in climate change. Was there sort of a, a pivotal moment then, as you were sort of learning these things, that made you decide, you know, I'm going to get involved in this? So I, I wish I had a more exciting story and some, <laughs> you know, big thing that happened to me. Um, but essentially, it was more of a kind of uh, slow build, really. So I'm sure that you guys are aware and lots of people were that last year in 2019, it, it seemed to be really at the forefront and mm. it was you know, making headlines everywhere. Um, so that's when I really started paying attention. And because I'm in London, I was walking down Oxford Street and saw the big pink bus, uh, big, big pink boat, sorry, in the middle of Oxford Circus and thought, what's this all about? So I started reading essentially and read some really great books so the one that really spoke to me was Uninhabitable Earth by David Wallace Wells um, and the more I read the more I actually just I actually just got really terrified so my, my pivotal moment was mainly just this real fear of learning the immediacy of what was happening that I didn't feel like I'd got before and then just being so terrified that I wanted to you know start start doing something about it and that's what kind of caused me to act so that was the kind of starting point and then I was thinking oh no one's doing anything about it and then I suddenly saw there's lots of doctors and lots of healthcare professionals doing a lot about this and have been for years um, but I didn't know about it so I was desperate trying to think you know how do I help people spread the word about the work that's already going on. Yeah and you got quite involved in or were you I know you went along to the Extinction Rebellion um, side of things as well and I, I, I remember at the time when that was all in the news there was some um, 
sort of groups of healthcare professionals or doctors who were representing there. So is that something you got involved in as well? So initially, I'd say I went more of as an observer. So I am on the kind of newsletter and things for Doctors XR. Yeah. I support a lot of what they do, um, but I didn't really want to be fully affiliated, I think, just because there was a couple of things happening around that time I didn't agree with. Mm. Um, so I did go to most of the kind of health protests that were saying things. Like, I don't know if you saw they put um, shoes out to represent the amount of people who die per day from preventable illness with air pollution and it was quite a kind of this image of all these empty shoes um so things like that where it was kind of demonstrating the health consequences I went along to um but a lot a lot of stuff I kind of just kept on the sidelines and kept an eye on but the thing that's kind of been the spin-off from that is I'm involved with Health Declares which is a new um, organization which is trying to help healthcare organizations and trusts and areas declare climate emergency um, which was kind of connected to Doctors XR initially. So that's what I'm more involved with now. Yeah, so it's sort of become from a spin-off from that, really. Oh, yeah. Wow, that's really interesting. Is that is that helpful then when sort of people are declaring these climate emergencies? Um, we know that uh, certainly councils and other organisations and things started to declare sort of climate emergencies. Is that a, a helpful way in, do you think? Is that, or is it sort of just a starting point? Where do we go from there? So I think it's a really interesting one about climate emergency because I heard that term and was like, what does that really mean? And mm. what does that mean we're going to do? So I think in, in policy and government terms, it's really helpful because you can say, look, you have declared a climate emergency. Therefore, this is why we have to put all these things in place. I think from the health declares, uh, so the full title is the health declares of climate and ecological emergency, is we are saying that actually it's a really good starting point to write to your trust and say, actually, lots of organisations already have and the government has and we should be taking action and it's part of the NHS long-term plan as well so I think it helps as a starting point in terms of using the language of what you're saying that it's an immediate thing that we need to get sustainability embedded into our hospitals or trusts or CCGs or whatever it is that you're working in. And in regards to sort of like your your work now and what you've been doing and you're being a GP trainee now a fully qualified GP how have you managed to sort of integrate your passion and interest in this issue into your like daily career really what have you how have you taken that forward because it's a really interesting sort of like mixture yeah so I think I think the big thing and what I want to get across because I'm sure there's lots of medical students and trainees and people who listen to this Mm. is that I started off being not really doing anything so I, I went through medical school I wasn't top of my class I didn't intercalate I then got into training kind of only just got into London with my marks I hadn't really done anything above and beyond what an average medical student then F1 F2 then doctor had done And so with this, I was thinking, how do I even start? Because I've never even been to a chaired meeting. And suddenly I was in these rooms with people who seemed to know what they were doing. It seems like a big beast to tackle. (laughs) All of climate Um, change. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I think my starting point actually was kind of listening and doing a lot of reading and research about what was already out there instead of just jumping into something that I didn't know what it was about. And I think that's the thing is that actually lots of the time, if you look, lots of hospitals now have teams, there will be something already going on for lots of places. Um, So that was the kind of starting point was finding out what was happening in my local area. I found that in my local hospital, there wasn't a sustainability group. So I went and gave a grand round. Um, which again was massively daunting because I don't I didn't feel like an expert or anything. Um, 
And from that, a group was set up. So then I was kind of involved at a hospital level. And then in the community, I just tried to find local GPs who were already doing projects and just tried to network basically and find other people. And that's how it's led to lots of things happening. So now I'm kind of joining the faculty as the, as the climate champion and I'm joining the Centre for Sustainable Healthcare as, as designing a course for GPs. So lots of things happened off the back of just essentially finding out what was going on and then kind of putting my foot in the door, kind of going through and then... Um, <laughs> trying to get involved and and often being honest and being like you know I haven't you know been to this thing before what how does this work and people quite like I think explaining or feeling that they're mentoring (laughs) people um so that's that was my starting point it sounds like you're getting very busy then (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah so what are some kind of examples of success stories that you've seen implemented yeah, so I think some really good advice I got right at the beginning was start really, really small. Um, so I went to my practice and was like, right, we've got to change the energy provider and got quotes for them and did all this stuff to, to say it's going to be a really quick fix. And then what I actually found is that NHS contracting of energy providers is different to your home energy provider. <laughs> and it's not as easy as doing that. Um, so I think. I think kind of accepting that there is a bit of failure in this that you need to keep going and that the quick switches that we got in my GP practice is just little things so we weren't double-sided printing we weren't turning off our machines after everyone went home um we were like throwing away the scrap paper it was just kind of basic things that you probably would do at home but you weren't doing at work mm. um and then I think in the hospital, there's loads of amazing examples of just a lot of stuff around awareness. So I don't know if you know much about the anaesthetic drugs, but um, desflurane has a much higher carbon potential. So it's a big emissions problem. And just from educating people not to use it, it's now, I can't remember exactly what the percentage is that it's come down to, but there's been a massive mm. reduction. Um, so I think that's the brilliant thing about the NHS and the brilliant thing about doctors is that we are constantly learning and we're part of a big organisation in which you can disseminate information and we're guideline driven. So I think that's where I'm putting a lot of my focus now is saying, where do we educate? Um, but lots of practices, I've heard amazing stories about people just doing, having a good idea. So there's a, there's a GP practice where they had a crutches amnesty. So they thought loads, <laughs> loads of loads of people coming in and saying, I've got my crutches from a and and they won't take them back. Um, yeah. And therefore, you've got, you know, a reusing system. You've got a place where people feel like they're doing a good thing, bringing their crutches mm. back. Um, and so the carbon savings of that is massive. But actually, the cost, that's the big thing about a lot of these changes is there's cost savings as well. That's amazing. I think, like, with the with the NHS being such a massive institution, I think it's like 1.5 million people employed or something around yeah. that. Like, Because I think you think, oh, it doesn't, you know, maybe on a small level, like an individual not double-sided printing or you know isn't going to make any difference but as you say if you can educate 1.5 million people to do double-sided printing then that's that's a huge amount of paper it's quite quite scalable isn't it yeah it's really scalable yeah so I think I think a really one of my favorite examples of something really working as a sustainability project is Bart's Health which is which is to be fair the biggest employer in the NHS Mm. in terms of the trust um they did this operation called Operation TLC. I don't know if you've heard of it. Yeah, I did read about that, actually. Um, where they said about turning off. So it was a simple thing. It was turn off lights, computers, and equipment. And when they first tried to do it, it didn't really work. And I, I imagine if you've worked in hospitals, you're often told to do stuff. And it's like you've got mm. so much going on. And it's really hard to remember what new policy or what new lanyard is out or whatever. <sighs> so they essentially made it TLC to say it was about patient care and that it was about 
reducing the noise in the hospital and, and making sure that we save money so they could buy all this equipment and people started making the changes and I think now it's they're up to sort of £400,000 a year saving just from behavioural changes alone so it's a simple switch it's saying you know we should be turning off these you know the equipment that's in theatres overnight which doesn't get used um, and, and we're saving the NHS money that then we can put into updating all the things that people are frustrated by like the equipment that yeah. we already have that doesn't work so I think there can be really it's just it just feels like the right thing to be doing that you're you're reducing the emissions and you're and you're saving money that then can help the NHS. So win-win really. Yeah, exactly. So I think um we kind of recognize that there's a lot of um travel involved in healthcare um with our sort of the big issue of the time coronavirus um and the uptick in the use of telemedicine. Uh, do you sort of see that as a really big positive step? Yeah, so I think I think telemedicine, I was really interested in before because there was lots of projects pre-coronavirus uh, in which people were talking about virtual clinics. And I think even imagining it from a patient experience, it does make sense that if you have a scan, for example, that something was incidental and you have a follow-up scan, that rather than being, you know, lugging or going into hospital, you just get a phone call that tells you it was all fine. And again, there's a massive cost saving with that because you, you have this sort of short time for the doctors and they can get things done. Um, I think with coronavirus, I now have a bit more of a balanced view of it that I think, especially in GP, I actually find it really difficult doing the majority of my consulting from telephones and not seeing people face to face. And we, I, I feel like it's a lot of stuff that, you know, I would bring someone in and actually over the phone, it was very different to what they said in person once you get a bit of rapport going. Oh, really? So I don't think it's completely there to replace yeah. but I think I think it's a brilliant tool that we have and I think the digitalization of the NHS needs to happen quickly and it has happened a bit more quickly in, in coronavirus <laughs> times yeah. mm. um, quite but, a good incentive yeah so I think I think telemedicine is definitely the way to go and, and has got massive carbon potential potential savings but the um the thing is that we need to not lose that human connection of being a doctor and and that holistic approach yeah completely uh, and I mean, on, on the flip side of talking about coronavirus, do you feel that maybe like it's distracted from the the climate emergency in sort of like the media and maybe in the, the focus of people's minds? Is that and maybe the NHS as well has obviously been very sort of busy and taken over with this mm. whole obviously understandable problem there's a lot of plastic in ppe and yeah like lo- lots yeah. of waste there, i see a lot there? of masks out on the f- on the floor on the street let alone how many are being disposed mm. of in hospitals and obviously there's the contrast between it being necessary or what you're actually wasting as well yeah so i think i think it's a really interesting p- p- point and something to think of so i think at the beginning of the pandemic i don't know what situation that you were having when it was all happening but i felt really overwhelmed by the amount that was coming through the, the guidance was changing every day then we had this kind of real peak of having phone calls where people were really distressed and i i took a massive backseat from it all i just thought actually i haven't got the headspace to keep going with sustainability and i think it's not the time to be pushing that on people because they've got enough to deal with and actually working NHS is really hard so Mm. lots of the time you don't need extra stuff to be doing you've already got your audit and your you know portfolio to be doing you don't need another project to be working (laughs) on um but what's really interesting coming out the other side as we're starting to see stuff opening up is there's a there's a big element where we can redesign what we were doing because that's what's happening now so they were you know we were told that we couldn't do telemedicine for all and then suddenly we can almost overnight so I think there's a massive opportunity here where we are now trying to push 
through sustainability projects because it's actually in keeping with what's going to help the coronavirus response. But I'm just a bit cautious to not say, oh, all this great stuff happened because obviously a lot of people suffered and died and a lot of doctors were in really difficult circumstances. Mm. So Mm. I'm aware of that balance of saying, let's get it right, um, coming out of it, but also with protecting people and on the note of masks I think it's um so I'm actually in I'm in an email chain at the most it's all very new um where we're trying to pilot these uh ones that you can kind of reuse and they are meant they are meant to be tested so I think there there are people working on this yeah um to try and see if there is because technically where's the evidence for everything I keep saying about I mean I'm trying to not wear my apron because I don't actually know what the evidence for in primary care for someone who hasn't got symptoms wearing an apron what that does so I think it's thinking a bit more common sense and and liaising with infection control as well and kind of talking about because that was something we were talking about before in terms of people's glove use and apron use um but I'm hoping we're going to innovate a little bit because someone emailed me yesterday saying that there's a machine which can melt them, the masks, and bake it into like wow. bumpers for cars. Really? So, wow. um, okay. That'd be great. So, I mean, it'd be great if there's something like that. But I think we're already, you know, I think it was like over a billion is going to already be in, in the bin now. So yeah. it's something that needs to be addressed, I'd say, as a matter of urgency, just just for, from kind of pollution alone, from plastic pollution alone. Yeah. And I because I'm still a medical student, so I've not been working, but I have been into the hospital to work on a project for a few days. And when I'm stopped at the door with my cotton mask and told to replace it for a non-disposable and I'm like, I'm not going to any clinical areas. I'm just walking through like it seems a bit and I'm like, is there is there evidence behind this that I'm not aware of? Or so I think that's something maybe we all need to think Mm. about and might change with time and and get get some clarification there. Yeah. And I think that's the thing as well is the government didn't, you know, I remember being sat in the coffee room and we were all going, well, masks don't protect you. So why are we wearing them? And then suddenly we're all told to wearing them all of the time. Mm. So I think we're really pushing and it's in keeping with the guidance that in GP, all of the reception, people who aren't patient facing should be wearing cotton masks. I think we're trying or or reusable masks. Um, And I think we're trying to say that to patients as well who come in with the surgical ones. just to try and say that's maybe the starting point as telling people that it should really be only people who wear the guidance says because obviously we need to put safety first but I think there is a bit I mean I'm sure you've seen it as well when you go out on the street and everybody seems to be wearing the under the nose um, <laughs> yeah surgical mask so. there's a variety of styles for wearing the safest surgical masks mask under your nose you're like <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah FFP3 on the chin yeah it's, a, it's an interesting one yeah mask fashion yeah okay so I mean, you've you've really laid down there um, the issue as it stands. Um, But what can we do, as you say, our listeners who are junior doctors, uh, medical students, what can they then do as on on a sort of practical level to move forward with trying to institute some sort of sustainability into places? Sure. So I think there's kind of the different approaches from the individual level. So what you're doing in your day to day life and then your kind of immediate things you can do with whether you're training or you're um, kind of postgrad. And then then there's the kind of bigger picture things of do you want to get involved at a bigger level, whether that's trust or national. So I think just thinking from if I was a medical student, for, for example, and even F1, F2, when you start, when you're looking at what you're doing with your year, you pretty much know that you're probably going to be asked to do some sort of quip or audit or something <laughs> yeah. like that. And um, and 
I think with with the sustainability stuff, it's it's all quite new. And from what I've seen, most of the stuff that's got through in terms of uh, research is is can be quite small scale studies, which then get published. So I'd say if you're looking for publications or you're looking for something that's a bit different, and rather than doing another AF audit or whatever you're looking at, um, the the Centre for Sustainable Healthcare has got lots of information about QI projects um, that they're doing that involve sustainability. And they also offer some support to medical students. And I think it's starting to get, I'm, I'm in touch with a few people who do medical school curriculum and education, and, and it's starting to get into the medical school curriculum. So I think it will be something that coming through is, is something that you, you could kind of be at the forefront of the change, really, if you were interested as a medical student to do a project. Um, and then there's the kind of, do you want to get involved a bit more? And like I said before, I mean, I got, I've got a friend who's in um, Manchester and they just got a, a newsletter come through saying, does anyone want to join our new sustainability forum? My local hospital in North London that I was I was on the group for and I've now taken a step back since I've moved out of hospital. They've just put a shout, you know, a Twitter account and all the things. So all these things are, I'd say, starting literally in the last few months. We've lots of them have cropped up. So I think the starting point, if you're, if you're attached to a hospital is say, ask someone whether that's the estates and facilities or whoever's in charge of it to say is there are there people getting together and talking about this and if not could we maybe start talking about it um and it is part of the nhs plan so they should be doing it it's not like asking people to do extra um so that's kind of what i'd what i'd say and then uh, you can go into all the individual changes but yeah. i guess everybody's looking at you know i think people know about those things already mm. that we should be doing so um yeah i think that's that's a really good probably. starting point. Yeah, because yeah, I know I've got a call. We have to do a quality improvement project this year at med school. So that's and I, I, I don't know where to start on that. So it's maybe a good idea for me. to Maybe, think yeah, about maybe that. that'll yeah. be your, your next thing to do. Yeah. One thing I wanted to ask you about, you sent us a photo of um, some little plastic caps in what seemed to be an enormous pile. Um, we'll, we're going to put the photo up. Would you mind just explaining what that was? Sure. So I think it was a GP in Devon. I can't remember exactly who shared it, but I did ask permission. They um, they asked a phlebotomist to start collecting. So you know when you've got a vacutainer and you put the needle in and then there's a plastic cap that you pop off the top. So that's mm-hmm. a sterile bit of equipment that you normally put in the bin. And this phlebotomist individually, one person over six months collected them. And then it filled almost the entire room. The, yeah, it's quite an incredible so, sight. <laughs> I think it, it was to try and because it can be so hard to visualize. I mean, I suppose waste is the way to go, but actually like emissions in the hospital, energy use is really hard to visualize. And it's not very exciting, you know, talking about, you know, procurement or all these words that I've now learned about. <laughs> is, and you're reading policy documents, you can, it can get really boring. So I think people have done some really good things to make people take notice. And one of those was this photo of all these needle caps saying, actually, should we be recycling them? Should we look at the systems to say, you know what can we do with with this waste that we're creating mm. and I, again i think in anesthetics are doing a, the, the sort of amazing work in this really because they're looking at lots of systems because anesthetics has so much waste you know they i don't know if you've shadowed or seen them but they they draw up all their drugs and then um a lot of them get thrown in the bin afterwards so mm. looking at ways in which actually if you look at the supply chain and say could we try and make a a less waste way in the beginning mm. if that makes sense yeah, yeah. Then, yeah then you could um so i think the things the thing that i got told recently was that when you open the syringe and it's got the plastic bit and the sort of white paper bit when you pull it open to get yeah. your syringe out that actually lots of people just throw that in the bin but the paper is recyclable 
or could we look at the whole thing being paper and then being recyclable yeah. so mm. it's it's those kind of tiny things where you probably lots of people have pet peeves in hospitals about oh it's so annoying that there's no recycling here or there's only a clinical waste bin there but yeah. it's actually going out of your way to say well who's actually in charge of that and could we you know, go and find a new bin can we get that here please yeah <laughs> yeah because there are so many bins aren't they it's all a bit of a, a minefield for where you're putting things so yeah. um sometimes i think people probably just go for the the, the most sort of dangerous bin put everything in that one so yeah, yeah. No, it's, it is tricky yeah. and i do there's also a photo of a bin that's got a sort of, sort of a waste bin and then the clinical waste bin is just a bit harder to get to and they audited people's use of these bins in one area versus another that were quite similar yeah. and they found that even just making it a bit more difficult to get to the clinical waste bin meant that they used it yet less <laughs> and the clinical waste bins are much more expensive they're like yeah. three times the mm. price per ton so it's another it's another cost saving as well it just all makes sense to be like we shouldn't be burning things that don't need to be burnt yeah and and we'll save money doing that and do you know the some of that burning does that happen on site at the hospitals or does that go somewhere else normally do you know yeah so i i I don't know exactly the process of but the the issue the issue it becomes very contentious in environmental groups which i'm trying to be cautious about what i'm saying because there is a thing about whether incineration is better in some ways um but overall these incinerators are so at the moment there's a big protest against the incineration because they often get put in low socioeconomic areas as well so then you've got the pollutants coming off them Mm. into an area that's then affecting the health of the people living in the area so i don't think i think most hospitals will have off-site incineration um but i guess it's it's trying to work out i think it's the main thing is to try and reduce the waste in the first place yeah um and the the director of the sustainability group in newcastle which is the first trust to declare a climate emergency he was the waste management person in the state you know 10 years ago so often it is those people who are going well actually let's ask some questions about what's happening here who then can take the lead on this and I think sort of moving on from that, the the thing we've not really discussed in depth, we sort of talked about our individual level of what we can do and then NHS and, and our daily lives. But actually, the fact that we're all healthcare professionals, we should care about how, well, everybody should, I suppose, but how about how this climate emergency is can impact on like global health and the health of, as you say, like uh, socioeconomic communities and all those sorts of things like it's got a huge impact much wider than just our individual interventions and things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I think this is really key and something that, especially with help, my work with Health Declares, we feel really passionately about that that should be at the heart of what we're talking about, especially as clinicians, is this idea of, of climate justice or climate fairness. And uh, we did get told that justice sometimes scares people off the idea, but essentially it's saying that wealthy country, wealthy people um, are are creating this really and to the detriment of you know, majority of the people who are going to start experiencing the consequences of this first is the global south with a lot of um, sort of the developing countries who are going to struggle. Um, but there's also stuff on UK shores. So there was a, a case of, I think she was a nine-year-old girl who died in South London and her parents took it to the courts that it was because of the levels of air pollution being dangerously high um, that, that contributed to her death and that was kind of held up in court. So I think we're going to, we might even see start seeing, you know, that we're in in policy and in law that mm. we have a we have a duty to protect people and that and that actually those those 
health impacts are not felt fairly across society. And I think that's also sometimes draws a link with coronavirus because people I know who were saying, oh, well, I've quite enjoyed being in my garden. And, yeah. you know, yeah. and actually lots of people I work in, in Tottenham and lots of people really, really struggled with just being in a, in a one bed house with lots of people in. Um, so I think it's that thing of often the what, things that happen in society don't affect us all equally. And that is certainly the case with with climate change. So that's something that I think needs to be, you know, right at the heart of what we're talking about. And often um, there's also a, a lot of things to do with kind of with social climate cl- and, uh, classes and with race. So we are kind of trying to fight to say about it, the climate movement should be anti-racist as well um, because of the fact that those those consequences are often mm. felt um, by indigenous communities as well. Because there are, I suppose, sometimes criticisms levelled at um, people involved in climate change and things um, that they're predominantly coming from sort of privileged positions and, as you were kind of mentioning, predominantly sort of white and privileged positions. Um, Have you kind of experienced that in your work and trying to sort of move against that or what's what's the feeling there? Yeah, so I think I think that's the so I think the difficulty is, and I I made the same mistake where I went, oh, you know, I saw the exile movement and a big I don't know if you saw there was a big criticism saying that it was majority white middle class older people who were getting arrested, and mm. actually the police have got a lot of you know contentious issues around um, the black community and and that sort of thing. So I was going, oh well, I'm from a position of privilege, and I I saw it as kind of the um, I want to come in. I've got the time and I've got the capability, and I, you know, I can, I can do this right now. Um, and so I'm, I try. I basically got told by somebody that I was kind of coming from a white savior complex, and that actually, <laughs> it's, it's actually completely wrong. And often, the, the biggest environmental movements have been led by indigenous, indigenous communities or um, black and ethnic minority communities who are working really hard to fight the things, or particularly in places. Um, I think there's quite a big case in kind of environmental injustice in South America and places like that. Um, so I think there's the kind of two things held up. I think in the UK, we do see that from the position of privilege, people working in this movement seem to be saying, oh, well, it's fine for you because you don't have to worry about, you know, the two jobs and the two kids at home. I think the thing to do again is that idea of, of listening to communities who are being impacted. So I don't live on a very busy road in South London where I have a child with asthma. I think I think we need to start listening to those stories because they're actually really powerful. And and I think it's a hard thing with how, how do you say to sort of diversify, diversify a movement. But I think we need to really actively be kind of so in health supplies we're not hierarchical we try and encourage anybody to join to kind of hear everybody's voices because often you don't get you can't have a response if you don't hear from the people it's impacting yeah i guess it's i guess it's a case of recognizing that privilege and being able to use it to give people the the voice that they need to be able to tell us what the real issues are yeah exactly is there one thing that you'd sort of like to leave us with uh to go away if there's one thing that we can all do what would that be? Yeah, I think I think it's really hard to say one thing, but I think what I would say is even if you've listened to this or you've kind of heard about it and you go, actually, it's not for me, uh, which is, you know, each their own. I think whatever you're doing, whatever you're, so say you're passionate about becoming an ENT surgeon, um, there is elements of sustainability that will come into whatever you're doing. And whether that's at, at home with you going home and, I don't know, recycling, or whether that's actually getting involved with the sustainability ENT projects that are going on. So I think whatever area you're in or whatever you're doing, there will be something that sustainability comes in. And I think we have a duty as as doctors to actually, you know, we did it for tobacco. I think we should be doing it for climate change. 
That's a really good point. Yeah. <laughs> that was a really good point, yeah. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thank you so much. That's all right. Thanks, guys. That was Dr. Tamsin Ellis, the Climate GP. You can find her on Instagram at ClimateGP or her blog on climategp.wordpress.com. If you're interested in finding out more about Health Declares or other resources to start your own climate change journey, we'll put them in our show notes and on our website, medicolifestyle.com. 